At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Hello and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, the first At the Foot of the Cross since our summer break. I'm joined by Father Chris Thomas, Canon Chris Thomas indeed, the General Secretary of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Canon Chris, did you have a good summer? I did, thank you, James. It was uh, very restful. I did a lot of visiting of people, both uh, at home and, and abroad, so it was very, very good. Very nice too. Our priests need a break. Well, I think I, I think that's right, but uh, I also think that people in jobs like mine where I don't have a Sunday obligation to be in a parish, um, and that's why I like going to parishes, so it means that I can uh, give a rest to, uh, to, to priests around uh, the country. Oh, I don't blame you, but I know how hard you work, and, and all the priests that work at, at the Secretariat, actually. So I'm glad you got something of a rest. I went to Lisieux, you know, Very and good. We'll, we'll come on to a bit of that, a bit Indeed. of St. Therese. Yes. Yeah. We'll come on to that a bit later. Because what are we going to do? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to, well, first of all, there are a few things to acknowledge. There's a consistory for new cardinals. And a few of the names in there we know rather well, don't we? We've, in fact, the former apostolic nuncio. Indeed. Um, Cardinal-elect Gujarati, uh, mm. um, who is now the prefect of the Dicastery for Eastern Churches, will be made a cardinal. Along with somebody who I met, I've met several times who I always find very impressive is... Uh, Archbishop His Beatitude Pizzaballa, who is the Patriarch yes. of Jerusalem, who will be the first Patriarch to be made a Cardinal, in fact, which shows the importance of uh, the Church's presence in uh, the land in which our Lord walked and preached his ministry. Stephen Brislin, the Archbishop of Cape Town, is a, a good friend of the conference, and we've worked very closely with him over the years, and he's being made a Cardinal as well, as is Bishop Chow of Hong Kong. And we've been developing our relationship with Bishop Chow because of the number of Hong Kongers who have come here uh, uh, after the, uh, the the British government opened the, the, the doors for them to yeah. come over. And so we've been working with him about making sure that there's good uh, pastoral resources for, for the people of Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, takes my mind back somewhat to Cardinal Vincent Nichols and in more recent times, Cardinal Arthur Roach. We've got we've had some interesting consistories that have affected our church in England right. and Wales. And Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald, don't yes, forget. Good, mustn't forget very him. good point. Very he, even good though point. Uh, even though he, he may not be a voter in a conclave, he's still a, a very significant character and has an experience of the worldwide church which is which is unmatched by some I would say. Yeah, no, you're right. And we, we are in the, the world of dicasteries, but when they were pontifical councils, he even headed up into religious dialogue, didn't he? That's correct. And then then he went to be the nuncio to the Arab states. And um, his his wealth of experience, especially in terms of dialogue with our brothers and sisters of other faiths, is, is something that we do draw on in the Bishop's Conference. And he's very generous with his time, isn't he? He is. turns up to many an event to share yeah, his wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, uh, he's also a, a consultant to our Department for Dialogue and Unity, which which is chaired by uh, Archbishop Bernard Longley. Yeah, we're, we're certainly lucky to have his eminence. So, I mean, look, you'd have, I guess, have to have been living in a cave if you did not know that there was a month-long synod about to oh, yes. take place in Rome for practically the whole of October. And interestingly, it will start with an ecumenical prayer vigil. 
Yes, the Holy Father has asked uh, the Teze community to animate this prayer vigil which will take place on Saturday evening. It's quite a unique thing. We've never had this before, uh, a synod. But what the Holy Father is trying to do here is to show that we must never think that the people of God is solely uh, those contained within the Catholic Church. You know, we must always remember that the baptised are the people of God. And indeed, if you were to take an even broader view, you could say that because Christ himself came amongst us as a human, we are all the people of God. Mm. Uh, which is is a, a paradigm that uh, that emerged after the Second Vatican Council. That uh, because Christ united Himself to the whole of humanity through His becoming human, we are all intimately linked to Him. But the ecumenical dimension and the interreligious dimension of this synod are very, very important things which we've never had before. So there are fraternal delegates uh, going from uh, other churches and from other world religions. And of course, we have our four delegates going from England and Wales, the two elected by the Bishops' Conference and the two appointed by the Holy Father, uh, alongside those who the Holy Father has asked to be animators and, uh, and facilitators from England and Wales as well. So our contingent actually is quite large. You know, yeah, one of whom of is a, a non-bishop voting member. Indeed, Father Jan, my, my colleague here, yes, he's a non-bishop voting member, but has an immense amount of experience in this, having studied it very closely in terms of his doctoral studies recently completed in Rome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we're packing a little bit of punch, I think, Aren't uh, to, we? To, uh, to, to say a, a phrase going across to the Synod. And let's not forget Dom Timothy Radcliffe. Oh, yes, who is leading the retreat. Mm. Uh, And Timothy is somebody with an immense experience, having been the Master General of the Dominican Order, visited virtually every country in the world where there are Dominicans, and uh, is is a remarkable speaker. I mean, his, his writings, but particularly his speaking, is something which is always touches the heart. I remember when in 2003 he was the principal animator and, and, and speaker at our Darsison conference in Nottingham and the speeches, uh, the talks that he gave there were really enthusiastic. He was really enthusiastic about that gathering, which was, I suppose you could say it's a small, it was a small Darsison synod, uh, but uh, the fruits of which were particularly important for the life of the diocese at the time. And, you know, I mean, people somewhat playfully say these things, but sometimes people have said to me, oh, well, that's good. At least they'll be doing some talking about Christ for this synod. So (laughs) Christ is at the centre of the synod. I mean, because what we are focusing on, and I've said this on many an occasion, James, you know, is this this is not a synod on synodality. I think that's a very Mm. bad tagline for it. It's a synod on the mission of the church in today's world. And how can we better proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it, who need to be refreshed in their hearing of it, those who have never heard it in the first place. How can we actually be a people who are focused on that missionary dimension to go out to the whole world to proclaim the good news, to teach the commandments of Christ, to baptise and to draw people into the communion of the church? That's what we've got to keep focused on, not on on hot-button issues or topics or things like that, but let's focus on What do we need to do to be more effective in our missionary discipleship? And once again, to remember that this isn't all over at the end of October 2023, is it? No, it it will continue. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in the in the year between October 23 and October 24. Yeah. But the most important thing that we do is to embed the principles of this synodal church, accompaniment, listening, respectful understanding of other people's positions, but also, above all, to sit in front of the Lord, to place these things to him and to discern the way forward in a spiritual, prayerful manner. Because 
It's not about topics. It's not about battles. It's about opening ourselves to the Lord. I read something the other day. We come to the Lord with empty hands and an open heart. And that really is what this synod is about. To place the church in front of the Lord and say, this is your church. How can we be more equipped to proclaim your good news to our world of today? Yeah, well said. Now, I have to say an awful lot is happening in October. We'll talk a little bit about World Mission Sunday, the 22nd of October. But obviously the Synod after the uh, three-day retreat officially opens on on the 4th of October, which is the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Interesting day, because that will be the day that the Pope will update, if you like, Laudato Si', the encyclical from 2015. So we've had eight years amazed that's gone so quickly eight years since Laudato Si I think this will be an exhortation that's how it seems to me right now John Arnold a little bit later on Bishop John Arnold Bishop of Salford is also our lead bishop for environmental issues he will speak to us for uh, five or ten minutes on that and I will also add that Anna Rowlands Professor Anna Rowlands and the aforementioned Reverend Dr Jan Novotnik have had a 20 minute conversation which I think is quite useful to preview the synod to sort of if you like manage those expectations as you rightly did to refocus that this is about the mission of the church in these times but talking about the mission of the church we also have an apostolic letter on the 15th of October from Pope Francis about St Therese of Lisieux whom you've been pondering Yes uh, St Therese um, I blame St Therese for getting me through the seminary because um, my devotion to her began when I went to the seminary actually I, I didn't really know very much about her but she was somebody who I turned to in prayer when things got tough and um, in all of the places that I've I, I've worked if there wasn't a statue of Therese I've always tried to put one in so here at Eccleston Square we have a statue of Therese in our chapel mm. and we have one in my former parish in Nottingham Was that your doing was it? Oh yes yeah, oh, yeah very much so marvelous. it's very important But this year we celebrate her 150th anniversary of her birth and the 100th anniversary of her beatification. Not so long ago, in fact, when I was a student in Rome uh, in 1997, she was made the youngest doctor of the church for her teaching. And it's quite a remarkable teaching from somebody who died so young. And we all remember with great affection the visit of the relics of St. Therese in 2009. I can remember it very vividly when I was asked to help with the hearing of confessions at Nottingham Cathedral before the relics arrived. And uh, I went into um, into the box at about four o'clock and I, I came out at five to seven just before the Mass was beginning. And I said I'd come back and I went back after the Mass and stayed until midnight. It was constant, you know, she's a draw. She's yeah. a draw to people's faith because of the simplicity of her life. And in fact, if you come to my house and you sit where I normally sit in my house, there's a little statue of Therese that looks at me. And in her hand is a book. Written in the book in French is I am love at the heart of the church and it's a reminder to me of my ministry as a priest which is not simply to be love at the heart of the church but to demonstrate the love of God for all of his people. And Therese is is a real character for that and I think she has great appeal to old and young alike. And it was quite a privilege and, and interesting for me to go to Lisieux in July having never been there before at all. Did the stations at the back of the sanctuary? It's it's, a, it's an interesting place, Lizia. The humility of Therese and her little way does come across in Lizia. Well, you, you you know you have to remember that uh, what she actually saw was sort of insights into how she, as somebody who entered the cloister young and never left the cloister, was passionate for the redemption of every soul, and that's why Pope Pius the Eleventh in nineteen twenty seven 
declared that she would be a co-patroness of the missions of the church alongside St Francis Xavier. Now, St Francis Xavier did leave the cloister, as it were, although I don't think he was ever in it. He was a Jesuit, uh, (laughs) and uh, he was uh, the great converter of Asia. And if you go into the Church of the Jesu in Rome and turn right when you get to the crossing point, on the left is the altar of St Ignatius. But on the right, um, you can actually see St Francis Xavier's baptising arm in a big reliquary. And it's said that he baptised over 100,000 people during his lifetime. So that was somebody who went out and preached the gospel Whereas we have Therese, who sat in her cloister, sat in the monastery. But she was no less passionate for uh, the conversion of souls to know Christ and to know his love than St. Francis Xavier, who went out and did all of that work. Her heart burned for the redemption of every human soul. She wanted them to know, she wanted everybody to know that Christ was the way, the truth and the life. The way that led to the Father, the truth that meant that you were free and the life that was not just to be lived fully in this world, but to go forward into the uh, into the next, into eternal life. And so the commitment that she made to missionary life was not about going to far-off lands, but committed to prayer and sacrifice for the work of the missions. Her daily mass, adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament, prayer and fasting were her tools of missionary activity. And it was Pius XI that recognised that contemplative prayer was so important and a necessary part alongside that apostolic work because both are needed for the gospel to take root in people's hearts. And what is missionary activity? It's simply the proclamation of the gospel and an evangelisation of peoples so that the church can take root where it has not been before. It's easy for us to think of films like The Mission, a great film, but uh, at the end of the day, we must all be missioners because we must all commend the work of evangelization to our prayer, to our acts of fasting and of penance and of prayer and, and, and activity because we all have our role to play in the mission of the church. And I don't know if you remember, this is way back. In fact, I was working here, but it was many moons ago. We had a little way week, which was to sort of encourage those small acts of charity or just little actions to remind people of of the Lord and, and to serve others and to think a bit less about yourself. And I think maybe we don't need a week for that. Maybe it should be more embedded in our lives. But it was a good idea, I think. Very much so, because the, you know, how do we proclaim Christ I mean, if we were to take the quote that comes from St. Francis of Assisi, although some say it doesn't, but it's a good one anyway, you know, go out into the world and proclaim the gospel if you have to use words. It's the way that we show an integrity of life that will draw people to an understanding of Christ, to see that, that, that the way we act and the way we speak and the way that we are one with another should become attractive to others because it should show that we are living out those two great commandments of God to love him and neighbour. The little way weak is just a, a focus on those little things. I mean, we don't have to go all the way to Therese for that. I mean, from my homeland, you know, St. David said, do the little things well, you know, mm-hmm. and that's really, really important in the Christian life. So, you know, the, the, the easiest thing that we can do, and I often think of it when I walk to work in the morning, especially now around here where there are so many people who are sleeping rough, yeah. is simply to offer them a smile. That can be so encouraging of them rather than simply walking by and not even acknowledging their presence. So those little things are really, really important. 
a little bit of kindness, a little bit of acknowledgement, a little bit of understanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the letter comes out on the 15th and then on the 22nd we have World Mission Sunday. Yeah. Now the Holy Father writes a letter for World Mission Sunday every year. The theme this year is Hearts on Fire, Feet on the Move, a very typical Francis sort of uh, catch line. Um, but um, the, the Mission Sunday letter this year is really important because in some ways it ties in with the synodal journey because it's about the road to Emmaus, which is a key text for understanding the synodal pathway that the Pope is asking us to walk. So it begins with the encounter with Christ. If you think about those two disciples walking away from Jerusalem, hearts broken, not understanding what's happened, the Lord comes up and walks with them. So the first thing is we've got accompaniment, uh, which is a big synodal thing. But to come back to Therese, she never set foot outside the cloister, but she accompanied missioners in her prayer Mm. in commending them to God. And so you have these three things then that the Pope talks about. Hearts burned, eyes opened, feet set out on the way. So hearts burned, walking away from Jerusalem, their hearts are downcast. And yet, when Jesus walks with them, he enfolds their experience into salvation history by explaining all the scriptures that were about him. And they realised their hearts were burning, but they couldn't recognise him at that point. And then the eyes are opened. And why do the eyes get opened? Well, first of all, there's an invitation to him to stay to continue the conversation so that that revelation can continue as well. And then it is Christ who broke the bread in front of them. And he actually is the bread broken because he has offered himself on the cross. He has been raised to new life. And at the Last Supper, he broke the bread for the disciples and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so what was shared and consumed by the disciples touches their own hearts. So Christ physically, as it were, in the consumption of the bread, touches their hearts to make them burn even more. And the bread is really important, the Pope says. He says, don't forget the bread feeding is a mission to the poor who are always with us. But then it's also the mission of the church because it is the bread that makes us whole in the Eucharist. So there's a twofold aspect there because we must always look to the poor and those little things can be so important to the poor, but also we look to the church. So our mission is always within the context of the church. And then, of course, the last thing is feet set out on the way. They return back to Jerusalem, so they go back to the church. They go back to the church, waiting in Jerusalem, not sure what's happening, stories coming in of resurrection. They're all up in that that upper room, and the disciples enter and begin to tell their story of what happened on the road to Emmaus and what happened in the breaking of the bread. And so the telling of the story is a proclamation of hope, and that's what we are missioning for. The mission of the church is always the proclamation of the, of the hope in Jesus Christ himself. And all of the baptised are called to this mission. And the Pope then goes on to say, in whatever way, either in our spiritual way to reflect Therese, in the apostolic way to reflect uh, St. Francis Xavier, or in the material way which you and I can do by supporting the missions, and particularly through the work of Missio. Our brothers and sisters across the road in the square here in Eccleston Square, number 23, with Father Tony Chantry at the head. They are the Pontifical Mission Society and their work is so important. So fill your red boxes, that's what I say, (laughs) over over the next few weeks. I think the Pope's letter is lovely this year, so have have a look at it because it does tie in with the whole of the idea of mission in the Synod. And what I like about that is that wherever we're at, whatever the state of our lives, whatever challenges and issues and and triumphs as well as disappointments we find ourselves experiencing there's a role for all of us in mission terms isn't there and that's why i think when we go back to pope Pius xi who had you know 
Francis Xavier, the great missionary to the east, and then and then you've you've got Therese sitting in her cloister, praying, offering sacrifice of praise to God for all those on the missions and for the redemption of souls. I think it just shows that the contemplative and the apostolic always go together. I didn't realise you had such a devotion to St. Therese. Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) it's a bit quiet in my life, but I do have a a devotion to her, yes. Like it. And actually, in our our, our daily readings, in our scripture, we've been talking about rebuilding the temple. We've had Ezra, haven't we, this week? That's right. We're we're looking at this period of the second temple at the moment in the Mm. the daily scriptures. And that's a a really important part of the way in which... Um, the Jews were called back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And in fact, they, they left probably a lot of prosperity to go back because they had settled in Babylon. But King Cyrus, who was the mouthpiece of God, challenged them to go back and to rebuild the city. And so they did. And so we read Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and the, 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 these prophets who um, encouraged the people in the rebuilding of the, of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. And that indeed is a noble mission. Of course, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so mission is the theme. I think so. And I was looking at the scriptures for this coming Sunday, the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time, and um, the thing that I was touched by is the opening prayer for the Mass. I think this, this sort of ties in very interestingly, not with the Gospel, but with the second reading, which is from St Paul's letter to the Philippians. The prayer reads, O God, who manifest your almighty power above all by pardoning and showing mercy... Bestow, we pray, your grace abundantly upon us and make those hastening to attain your promises heirs to the treasures of heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. It's, it's a lovely prayer. First thing it does is to show us the great power of God. He manifests his power through pardon and through by showing mercy. So that's the compassionate heart of God, which is so important. And we only come to know that through the revelation of Jesus. So if you now go to the second reading, which has that wonderful hymn of St. Paul to the Philippians. Now, this hymn probably predated the letter. It was probably something that the Philippian church was familiar with, uh, and it was probably part of of the liturgy. And so Paul quotes it uh, to give a sense of, of authority to what he's trying to say. Because, as you know, what we pray is what we believe, and what we believe is what we live. That Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Yeah. And so that hymn which we read on Good Friday is so, so important. His state was divine, yet he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself to assume the condition of a slave and become as men are, and being as all men are, was humbler yet, even to accepting death, death on a cross. But God raised him high and gave him the name which is above all names, so that all beings in the heavens, on earth and in the underworld should bend the knee at the name of Jesus, and that every tongue should acclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That beauty in the hymn is the sort of condescension of Jesus into the world, and then the raising of him up high, not only on the cross, but ultimately back into heaven, so that we know him as the Lord of creation is really, really important. So when you think about how do we attain the promises and become heirs to the treasures of heaven? Well, we look at those graces that God wants to bestow upon us through his mercy and through his compassion, which is only possible through the humility and the obedience of Jesus, which is beautifully set out in this hymn. So he did not cling to his equality with God. And that always makes me think of Adam, who grasped equality with God when he took the fruit from the tree. 
And so what we have here is a, a, a contraposition to uh, the pride of humanity in the humility of God himself, coming to assume the condition of a slave, self-emptying, pouring himself out for the service of the mission. The mission of Jesus, of course, was to reveal the Father as the compassionate Father, the merciful Father who pardons all who seek him. And so this condescension down into the world and then the ministry, the preaching of Jesus that draws us into his life. Because if we are to hasten on to attain the promises, what we've got to do is to imitate him in his obedience and in his humility. And if we do that, what we suddenly see is that there isn't a sense of self about us, but there's a sense of me being part of something greater. So to go a little bit further up in the in the reading, what Paul talks about is that the church should be united in love with a common purpose and a common mind. And so if you think about obedience and humility as not putting my point of view forward all the time, but listening to those around us to engender within us in the church that sense of a common mind, a fraternal unity that brings us together as believers of the Lord. So we then have that common purpose to go out and to proclaim that which we've received, which is part of mission. And so what we have here is this is this wonderful um, teaching of Paul to not put self forward, but actually to be a minister one to another. Because that's when we attain that wonderful word that comes just before this hymn, In your minds, you must be the same as Christ Jesus. And the only way that we can be the same as Christ Jesus is if we empty ourselves just as he did. Know that we are a member of the church in where we find our common purpose and then take that common purpose out into the world. And then the grace that God gives through pardoning and showing mercy will make us hasten on, run on to attain the promises and the gifts of the kingdom of heaven. So that's why I think that this Sunday, that opening prayer and this beautiful hymn from Philippians really gives us a challenge. Thinking about our mission, we are part of the church, we don't do this on our own, we are always part of a community. How best do we do this together? That's the synod. How best do we do it where it's not been heard? St. Therese and the work of the Pontifical Mission Society in World Mission Sunday. But more importantly, how am I going to convert myself so that I may be a better missioner, a better disciple wherever I am. Because every time we enter into encounter, prayer and life in the church, we deepen our understanding of self, we express our obedience to God and we receive his mercy so that we are then empowered to go forward in our missionary activity. Goodness me, you are a very skillful fellow, I must say. How do you? I don't know how you connected all. I, I looked at October and thought, oh my goodness, apostolic letters, exhortations, synods, month-long synods, retreats, and I thought, oh my goodness, how does this all fit? But you've made it all fit, and you'll have impressed uh, Fleur, who looks after our God Who Speaks project, because you've connected it all to Scripture. Oh, well, that's, that's the important thing. <laughs> you'll be in her good it? books. Our, scripture, our Scriptures are our greatest resources. Wonderful thing about about this, though, about the, this this scripture, I always remember a preacher, I forget who it was, but it left an impression on me because at the end of, of his homily, he said, when we look about our mission in the church, it begins from the moment of baptism. So do we see baptism as the entry ticket to heaven or do we see it as a work permit? And I love that because I think that baptism certificates are a work permit for us to go out into the world and to proclaim the good news. 
Let's all go and pick up our work permits. <laughs> Canon Chris, thanks very much. Canon Christopher Thomas, General Secretary here at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. On top form, I must say, skillfully weaving all those aspects of mission through our podcast. Right, a little earlier on, you probably remember that I mentioned the Pope's update to his great environment encyclical, Laudato Si. So without further ado, let's head up to the roof of Clergy House in Westminster, overlooking the cathedral no less, to speak to Bishop John Arnold. So, Bishop John Arnold, our lead bishop for environmental issues, we have an exhortation which, if you like, brings a little bit up to date Laudato Si, the Pope's encyclical on care for creation that was released in 2015, eight years ago. Um, in your view, eight years on, what are the imperatives? What is the need, the environmental need, to update this document and make a strong call to action? Well, I think after eight years, we've got to take stock and recognise that uh, Laudato Si really um, brought environment into uh, the subject for all people of goodwill. And it was a very powerful statement, but it was with strong warnings. And the unfortunate thing is that eight years on, several COP meetings later, we really have not been achieving the targets that those COP meetings have agreed. And the damage is not being reduced. In fact, in some ways, it's increasing. And some of the predictions of the environmentalists about what will be happening to the climate um, are proving to have been, um, in a way, simplified. And they're actually accelerating faster now than those environmentalists were thinking. So I think uh, the new statement by Pope Francis will be strong and will give an urgent warning. Uh, but I think, as always, he will finish with that sentiment of hope and that sense that uh, in the urgency, we've all got our part to play. And we sometimes ask those questions, you know, just, just how much is our behaviour affecting the environment? And certainly we look around us and we see more extreme weather. Even here in the UK, we see more extreme weather. And just recently there was the question mark over the lack of ice in the sea in the Antarctic. So there, there are signs, aren't there? Uh, there are reasons for action now. Oh, certainly, the Antarctic has never had less ice uh, as it emerged from winter uh, as in, on any record. And that is very serious, and the oceans are warming. And that's having a big impact on biodiversity and on marine life. And every continent now has been struck, even in the last six months, every continent has had some freak conditions, which environmentalists say is due to climate change. And so we're surrounded by it. And even in this country, we've seen droughts and we've seen unseasonable weather. It's affecting our crops. Uh, the harvesting time is not as clear as it should be. And the crop itself is being compromised. And so in terms of those that might be challenged by this and say, well, these things are cyclical or I'm not convinced it's as a result of, if you like, human activity or, or corporate behaviour or whatever else, um, what would you say to those that, that have that more sceptical eye on this? Well, all I can say is that the evidence presented to us by people who really do understand the environment is irrefutable. That we are clearly uh, going downhill rapidly. And Antonio Gutierrez, who draws on great authorities as Secretary General of the United Nations, he's talked about no longer it being global warming, but now global boiling and that we are facing a climate catastrophe. I don't see how people can deny it anymore. 
And in terms of obviously the, the synodal pathway, a, a synod and how the church exercises its mission in the 21st century, Pope Francis is clearly one to talk about custodianship, isn't he? How does that play into this particular dynamic? Well, I think we've got to understand that we are stewards of creation. Each and every one of us has our part to play. They may seem to be trivial measures that we take uh, in order to save electricity, save water, eat less red meat, all these sorts of things, all small in themselves. But if we put them together, then they do make uh, a big difference. But what we've got to look to is system change and the ending of fossil fuels because they really are the most dangerous element in global climate change and we've got to learn to live without fossil fuels. And in terms of the theology and the spirituality, how does Christ play into us being good custodians of this earth? Well, I don't think we can take the most important commandments seriously unless we include nature and the environment. When that Pharisee asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment of the law? And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And the second one resembles it, you must love your neighbour as yourself. If we're really going to love our neighbour, we've got to look after the world in which we live. Because too many people are suffering through climate change and we've plundered other nations for our profit. And that's got to change. And we've got to repair the damage and make sure that in that way we're looking after our brothers and sisters, which is our way of loving God. And finally, Bishop John, our parishes, schools, organisations, some are doing an awful lot, and I know they've fed, fed back to you what they're doing. Is there more, is it, is it unfair to say there's more that can be done, or what would you say to, to those Catholic organisations in terms of their responsibilities? Oh, I think there's certainly more we can be doing, and that's, uh, first of all, education. Young people are understanding it far, far more clearly than perhaps an older generation. Yes, parishes, schools, all Catholic organisations, we can all be learning more and when we know and understand, then I'm sure people will want to join in a more joint effort to make sure that we are doing our best to repair the damage that we've done. And there are many things that we can be doing, but we must not take anything for granted. We've got to press ahead and make sure that we are a voice a voice to our democratic nation that says we must change our policies and our, our life as a nation. Strong stuff there from our lead bishop for environmental issues, Bishop John Arnold. Now, please forgive this really quite long podcast by our standards, but I hope you'll give us a little bit of leeway as it's all relevant stuff. Now, with the month-long synod on the church's mission in the 21st century, just around the corner, let's join two delegates from England and Wales for a special preview. Father Jan Novotnik and theologian Professor Anna Rowlands. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Father Jan and I'm in conversation today with Professor Anna Rowlands. Both of us will be at the synod in Rome uh, this coming October. Uh, not just us actually, but also um, other members of the church in England and Wales, uh, thinking of our bishops, uh, Archbishop John Wilson, um, the Archbishop of Southwark, and Bishop Marcus Stock, who's the Bishop of Leeds, um, both elected uh, by their brothers, the bishops of England and Wales. Also joining them will be Bishop Nicholas Hudson. He's an auxiliary bishop uh, here in Westminster, and he will be at the Synod too, um, chosen by Pope Francis to be there. 
Uh, alongside um, them will be Professor Anna Rowlands and also Austin Ivra, who are going to be there as facilitators or um, synodal experts. We'll come on to that in a moment, Anna. Um, and also, um, the Church of England and Wales is well represented, uh, Father Timothy Radcliffe, um, the Dominican preacher, um, who you will have undoubtedly heard of, um, is leading a retreat um, for all the members of the Synod as we begin in Rome in October. So what we would like to do in the time that we have, Anna, is just to think about some of the themes of the Synod, um, have a little conversation. As part of our ongoing kind of discernment here in England and Wales as to why the Synod is important, where we're up to now, and what's going to be happening in October. So a really simple question to start, although Anna's an expert here. Um, for a synodal church, um, communion, participation and mission. Just say something briefly about why that is going to guide what we're doing in October. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that's often said to me, and it's worth kind of clearing this from the table, I think, up front, is, oh, this is, this is a synod on a million different issues or topics. And that's because so much of the media debate um, focuses on four or five hot-button mm. topics that the world mm. is interested in. Very often when I'm with journalists, they will literally flick through documents mm. that have just emerged to look for married priests, women priests, questions of abuse, LGBTQ, welcome and so forth. And that's how they kind of almost fill it, a document. Mm. Now that, from the perspective of those of us who've been labouring on the synodal process for, for a while now, is almost kind of heartbreaking because this is not a synod on a million different mini issues. This is about the renewal of the church, going back to the very core of the gospel mission um, of the church to be a community for all. So the Pope keeps emphasizing, and he says this, whenever we meet with him to talk about the synodal process, everyone is welcome, tell them everyone is welcome. So the synod is meant to be much more asking that question about the who of the church mm -hmm. rather than the what of the church. So it's not sorting out doctrinal issues. That's not what this will do. And there's fear of that, I think, mm -hmm. in some quarters, that this is a synod that's going to make big doctrinal changes. Some fear that, some desperately hope for it. I think both groups will be quite disappointed mm -hmm. in a way if they're looking for big doctrinal change because the Pope's focus is on the who of the church, on the question of the way in which our life itself <clears throat> is sent out and focused on mission to the world. The church is the only institution that exists, not fundamentally mm -hmm. for its own members, but for the sake, as it were, of the conversion and mm -hmm. the salvation of all. So a renewal in that focus on mission. But you don't get to that mission if you haven't actually done your housekeeping mm. and you're not thinking about the kind of community that we are and that we would be drawing people into. So that question of participation, the who question again, mm. who belongs, how do they belong, who participates, how do they participate, and how is all of that being held by the inspiration of the Spirit who pours out on the church the gifts and skills and talents, often on those who we might lead expect mm. those gifts and talents to emerge from and this is again how the church is different from any other institution yeah. so renewed for mission to the world renewed in the who question and the how question of participation mm. and renewed through all of that in communion in a way of being together and what could be more important for the world to hear right now in the fractured brittle divisive mm. times that we live in the friend enemy constant distinction who are you for who are you with we mm. are for Jesus Christ together as brothers and sisters and we are renewed in that mission to show the face of the living Christ to the world 
That's what the Synod's about. It's a huge task, but it's together working through what that means in a concrete way for the church today, for the sake of the world. No, that's really helpful, Anna, and um, that sense of um, working together and the mission of the church. When I think back to the tentative beginnings we had here in England and Wales, where um, the people who are listening to us now might remember being part of a conversation in their local parish, um, when all those responses came back, what we were hearing was that people loved Jesus, they loved the church, um, they didn't always think it was perfect, they knew that there was work to be done, um, and I think that they were beginning to understand that this process is a little bit about that, that we all participate through baptism um, in the life of the church, uh, we're fragile, vulnerable human beings, um, and I think you mentioned about Pope Francis saying everyone is welcome, you know, that sense of accompaniment and walking together um, has been essential, really. And I think we've been rediscovering that. That's right. Yeah. And I think that language of accompaniment is crucial, that the Pope is asking us how to walk together. How can we better walk together? And that means how do we accompany each other in our lives? Some of the most interesting material, because I sadly am a kind of synod nerd who had to read every single one of those reports that came in from every bishop's conference Gosh. across the world and all the individual letters um, and individual mm. submissions and group submissions that came in. So I am so aware of how often people actually said what we want is a church that accompanies us. And very often it was things interestingly like, how does the church really accompany families these days? How are we not kind of collapsing into the culture of individualism, a kind of therapeutic culture that simply accompanies individuals? But family units are yeah. desperate to be accompanied in their familial identities. Mm. And the Asian Bishops' Conference have got, uh, conferences have got some really interesting examples of how they're trying to build accompaniment of families. In other contexts, it's accompaniment of people who are um, really having to think through their identities in various mm. ways, and they want the church to be with them as they work out without instant answers mm. what their life looks like in a, in a, a Christological way. So yes to definitely accompaniment, I think is an absolutely kind of key note to this. Mm. And that doesn't mean it's soft and insubstantial. Yeah. No, and, and that's really interesting because when we talk about this accompaniment, you know, I think we are learning. Certainly I sense it here in England and Wales when I talk to, to priest friends and lay friends. They're saying, you know, something is happening in our parish. People are thinking about things which are really deeply important to them. Um, and this process has given them the opportunity to, to really think through some of those things. And, and that is really helpful. Now, I just want to move on slightly, if I may, to think about how we're going to accompany each other when we're in Rome. So there are lots of different groups of people who are going to be at the Synod of Bishops. People often think it's just bishops who are there, but that's not quite true, is it? And particularly this time. So could you tell us a little bit about that, Anna? Yeah, so this is going to be um, a very diverse gathering. Think sort of Pentecost and, yeah. you know, the many different people speaking through their different cultures, languages and from their different experiences. So there will be bishops. It remains a synod of bishops. Um, so there will be bishops as a core part of that group. There are people who are there as, as you will be there as non-bishops. Well, we need to say not say non-people. You're not a non-person. You're there as a priest in your vocation, in your calling and as an expert on synodality. And you will be a voting member. Yeah. Um, I am a 
non-voting person, um, not because I'm a woman, because there are, for the first mm -hmm. time, laymen and women who are voting yeah. members of a synod, and that really is a very significant shift yeah. um, in practice. And then there are people like me who are experts who'll be supporting the process, but we won't be voting and we won't be taking mm -hmm. part in the small group discussions in the same way yeah. that, for example, you will be or Bishop Hudson will be and yeah. so forth. That's really interesting that, you know, um, I was, you know, very taken aback um, to, to receive what is a papal nomination technically um, and you know along with um, let's say the other nine people from Europe I know I've seen the names in the group I met some of them when I was in Prague at the the synod um, the continental phase of the synod you know and amongst there that I think there's another priest but laymen and women and religious um, and it's a very broad mix and I think it's worth saying as well in my role as a national ecumenical officer that we will have fraternal delegates from the other churches That's as right. well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the really interesting things is part of the reason that you're there mm. and people who were involved mm. in the continental level processes is Pope Francis wanted people who were the memory mm. and the kind of the golden thread of connection right from the grassroots up to mm. the universal level of the Synod meeting. And that's partly because he felt it was so important not to lose the memory mm. and the experience of where the, where the Synod was most alive in those local contexts. And he thought there was a danger that the universal level could potentially drift off a little if it didn't have that fundamental connection. The other thing is that so much about synodality, which sounds like a word that nobody feels that they really understand yeah, or can get absolutely. to grips with, is learned by doing, it's learned yeah. by practicing it. And you kind of know it when you have been through this really rich process yeah. of conversation in the spirit, spiritual conversation. So you are an expert yeah. in conversation in the spirit because you have done yeah. this with groups of people and you've faced tensions and really mm. tricky issues and you've hit upon the main fault lines in the church mm. right now globally in those conversations and you've lived yeah. to tell the tale so there's a kind of learning Absolutely. there's a learning that you bring so you are memory and you are learning and you are the habitual practice of mm. the very method um, that is the lifeblood of, of synodality yeah and moving on to that method because um, you're making me think back to the time in Prague where we spent time all together there were 200 of us in the room in mm. Prague and others joining in online but there was also the the moments where we were in groups and you know some of those tensions challenges came out um, one of them for me actually um, which is quite significant was that in the group um, by chance I presume I don't know um, there was a lady from Ukraine and a lady from Russia mm. and that was very interesting when in the context when we were doing this work um, there's a war on our continent and so, you know, when people say that the church is being a bit too introspective, just thinking about herself, actually I would challenge that because we were going through and living through people's real situations. Um, and they weren't daggers drawn, they were actually wanting to bring reconciliation and they knew that their country people were hurting. So I think, you know, you're right. I think the Synod is looking at fault lines, but it's looking at people's real lives. So if we may, just for a moment, because we, we've not got all day, I'd love to be able to talk to you about synodality all day, um, to think about that methodology. Now, I mentioned about the group work, um, and that's where I think these kind of conversations in the spirit are really going to take place. Because we all know when we go to big meetings, when you're in a big room and there are 400 people there, it can be a bit difficult. The smaller groups, I think, are going to have about 10 or 12 people in specific language groups. So how, how do you think that's going to work? Yeah, so I think... 
um, we all know, um, you know, if you're in a bigger group, the energy sort of disappears yeah. um, and you don't feel engaged. Yeah. Whereas a smaller group conversation humanizes things. Yeah, you know, we're having absolutely. a conversation between two of us now. That's a much more human experience yeah. than sitting in a seminar room <laughs> with 40 people or whatever. So part of it is about encounter and also taking time and patience. And the other thing we should emphasize about the method mm. that I think people don't necessarily understand well is how important silence and contemplation yeah. is to that method. This is not meetings about meetings. This is not endless talk and discussion, mm. as often there's a kind of parody yeah. of a synodal process. Silence and contemplation and sitting with a small group of people mm. in a prayerful silence where you hold the complexity of what you cannot easily necessarily mm. fix straight away or do not have the wisdom yet to know exactly how you should yeah. resolve. Those moments of silence and, and contemplation are crucial to that method being something different from a general conversation or a parish council meeting, you know, even terribly well run yeah. or whatever it will be. So we hope that becoming more practiced in that method through small groups will break something open that we do not yet know. And so yeah. much of uh, what <laughs> I hope for from the Synod process is for what I do not yet know. Mm. Of course, there are sort of some things I vaguely would hope for as any general Catholic, you know, mm. baptised person, parishioner would. But my true hope is for what I do not yet know that this process will deliver. And I am waiting in a prayerful sense. Yeah. I'm waiting on the activity of the spirit to break that open. And the silence is crucial to that, not just the speech. Yeah, and I think that you make a really interesting point because I think we said at the, at the beginning that I said, you know, um, Father Timothy Radcliffe is leading a retreat. Mm. So we're beginning, I don't think any synod has begun with three days of retreat. Correct. So, so that, that really emphasises that point. Although, actually, technically, it begins with the ecumenical prayer vigil. That's very so, true. And the ecumenical officer should remember <laughs> to talk about so that. Absolutely. You know that the Pope joked this week yeah. and asked a group of people, so when does the synod start? Mm -hmm. And they went, with the ecumenical with prayer the vigil. Prayer exactly. And, and, and they said, we got the right answer, thank goodness. So that, and the fact that there will be that mm -hmm. prayer vigil um, in St. Peter's Square, um, led by members of the yeah. Teze community uh, and others. That, and people have been invited to come from any part of the world to be participants in their own way in praying. Yeah. You know, we will be dependent on the prayers um, of, a, of a global community of Catholics and beyond for the success um, and, and that, this. you know, I think it bears mentioning to, to those who are listening in to us that, you know, I've said I'm the National Ecumenical Officer, I think people have heard that now, but you know, some of my Methodist friends and people I work with are actually going to be in the square in St Peter's when we begin. Um, and they have told me, and alongside, you know, my Anglican friends and so many others, that they're praying for the success of the Synod. So, you know, when Pope Francis talks about everyone, he's not just talking about baptised Catholics, he's talking about everyone. So, um, I think there is a lot to be hopeful for. And like you, I think I'm waiting to, you know, to see what happens, but not looking into a crystal ball, but really trying. And it's a new experience, even for a priest, you know, to, to suggest that really waiting on the Holy Spirit, you know, and trusting. And I think this process has brought that about. Now, I know we've got to wrap up in a few moments. So um, people will be saying there are challenging questions. So here's one to end. We always leave the hard questions to the end. Um, and people in the church will be asking these questions, you know, the ordinary Catholic, what is this synod actually going to achieve? You know, what will happen at the end of October? Um, I know that's unfair for all the reasons we've just said, but it's a question people are asking. Yeah. People ask me, so, and I'm sure they ask you as well. 
So what would you say to that question? So the first thing to say is that this is now a feast in two parts. Exactly. So this is the first course, as it were, <laughs> and then there's another course next October to follow. And that's actually really important yeah. because the Pope wanted to slow this process down. Mm. I think he looked at the process after we had met last autumn mm. in Frascati and realised just how complex and how mm. many issues and questions and realities yeah. there were on the table. And he wanted to give the time necessary mm to think at the pace of walking, yeah. if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I often, this is drawn from somewhere else, but I often think that running is what you often do when I do run. Mm. You create a mental void mm. by running. Walking is what you do in order to think and to work yeah. things through. So the two Octobers, dividing it over mm. two years in this way, is to think at the pace of yeah. walking. So that means that this year, we will be discerning and opening up questions and exploring, I think, where there will be more work needed. Mm and deciding where the key areas are that we need to go more deeply and importantly, how we will go more deeply into those areas. So I would expect this to be deliberately an interim stage. There won't be a final document at this point. There won't be absolute decisions, but there will be surprise things, I think, that will come up on the agenda that will bubble up yeah. that might not be there yet in the yeah, instrument of laborious or in the, in the document from last year. But I would expect a refining process, a refining and a deepening of the most urgent questions from around the world that face the Catholic Church as a truly universal community yet always local in particular. Yeah. No that, that's really helpful and I think you know um, with one of the other hats I wear here you know as the director of mission um, I'm often saying to people that I think what the synod and what is in Pope Francis's mind is about drawing all the members of the church and beyond the church into a deeper relationship with God and a deeper relationship with each other because the church exists to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and to bring his healing mercy to the church. And you really get that sense. And as we begun to walk together, I think that's where I'm beginning to realize that it's such a necessary process. So I'm really glad that we've been able to have this conversation today. Um, I hope that we'll be able to have more conversations. Certainly while we're in Rome, we will be letting you know how we're getting on. Um, it's going to be a busy time in Rome. Um, it's busy days. Actually, you know, we're working Monday through to Saturday um, of the four weeks that we're there, mornings and afternoons. You're probably sitting there thinking that's not that much. But, you know, when you're asked to be involved in this process, I think it's there's a lot of work to be it's done. Intense. It's intense. And people feel a huge sense of responsibility yeah. because they're Absolutely. carrying both people's hopes and fears. Absolutely. And anybody walking into that room is walking in quite, both hopefully very free, but quite yeah. laden with that sense of responsibility So I as know well. that we'd be asking people for prayers, for us, for our bishops, not just for those of us in England and Wales, but beyond, you know, that we're really attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And uh, just to say once again, Anna, we're really grateful, wish you a safe journey, and I look forward to seeing you in Rome, and uh, being together for the continuation of this synodal journey, and uh, just thank you very much for your time today. And you for yours. Thank you. Well, that's it for this At the Foot of the Cross podcast. Please accept my thanks for your patience. I certainly hope you got something out of this near hour-long episode. So spread the word, if you will. Share At the Foot of the Cross with those you think may well be interested. And we'll be back next month to bring you the latest from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Bye for now. <laughs>